Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? And this is the second episode in our Dorchester series. The Dorchester Conference is the premier conservative conference in Oregon, and this year took place at Mount Hood on April 12th and 13th. Nick and I were out there and had many great interviews with some great people, and you're about to hear two of them. Get excited, listeners. We definitely, we do, we do have some winners. I'm laughing because we, we had many great interviews. We also had, we had some purple cocktails at one point. (laughs) (laughs) We were, we were living it up. Dorchester's the place to be. Uh, but our first interview today is, um, is with Gary Wilhelms, who was a, he was a state representative and he was the, the leader of the house back in the seventies. And it was a really interesting chance to have a conversation with him because, Obviously, politics is politics, but he's said to us, and he said in many interviews before, that he was there to get things done. And after the election, everybody got to Salem. Both R's and the D's would look around and they say, "Okay, what are problems that we can fix, and what do we what do we make sure to do about it?" And one of Gary's signature pieces of legislation that he worked on, which if you live in Oregon, you're probably familiar with, is the kicker. The kicker being, if the tax revenue for Oregon is two percent greater than whatever the state budget is for that biennium they then return that money to the taxpayers. And this is one of the things that Gary worked on back in the 70s. Making it rain. (laughs) (laughs) Which, and I I thought it was interesting because he, uh, and again, you know, spoiler alert, but he says in the interview, he said, I'm not sure today if that's what would get done. I I don't know that that's necessarily what would be the best thing for today. So he's very careful to hedge his best, but he said, this is what the people wanted back in the 70s. And this is what, you know, this is what we've got. And that's Kate Brown has now gone through and essentially raided the kicker. She appropriated $108 million of Oregon's taxpayers money that would have come back to us to start putting a putting it towards the the PERS deficit, which is a I realize that how this sounds, but $108 million is a drop in the bucket, which for all you listeners who listen to our PERS episode, you all know that. But it was a, it was really interesting to, to talk to him about what it was like to, to come up with this, come up with this idea and get this legislation through. And so without further ado, here is our interview with Gary Wilhelms. So our first guest today is Gary Wilhelms, former representative. Gary, what do you, what do you do in these days? Well, I'm retired. Oh, you are? Okay. And, and okay. enjoying it a lot. But uh, I, I do a little writing and a little traveling and, uh, you know, spend a little time with my family. Yeah, excellent. So how long were you uh, a state representative? Four terms. Four uh, terms. In the 70s. In the 70s. Ni- 1970s, then. <laughs> <laughs> so your claim to fame, as we were talking about downstairs a little bit, is that you were you helped author the the bill that created the Oregon Kicker. Is that correct? Well, I was, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a claim to fame, but I was on the conference committee out of which the kicker actually came as a part of a tax reform package okay. uh, in the 1979 session of the legislature. Excellent. So for those of us who are not familiar with that or are from out of state, the Oregon kicker is if the state legislature overestimates how much money they're going to, how much their revenue is going to be for the for the biennium. Yeah. The the difference is then instead of rolling into the budget for the next year, is returned to taxpayers. If the surplus is uh, over two percent of what the estimate estimated revenues were, okay, then it's it's kicked. Uh, that the two percent is the kicker. 
And, right. and that's uh, that, and then there, it's refunded to the taxpayers. Got it, got it. And originally it was refunded in the form of a check to the taxpayers. Now it's refund it's refunded in the form of a credit on your next year's taxes. Got it. So why don't you, I mean, can you just give us a little bit of story about, about how that came about? You're talking a little bit downstairs about the... Uh... Well, the, the situation was different in 1979. That's sure. 40 years ago. But uh, if you can uh, believe this, we had about a $700 million surplus hmm. in I the general fund. I cannot believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that was, uh, the, the taxpayers were very upset about the property tax structure in the state. But in any event, we had this surplus and there, there were all kinds of schemes to tr- figure out how to uh, use that money politically to... Uh, uh, if you will, by the goodwill of the voters, et cetera. But having said that, there were a number of, of good proposals that, that came up and were put into a tax package. We don't have time to go through all of the proposals that were in there. One of them was a property tax relief proposal, but one of them was the, the 2% kicker. Sure. And that was brought into the conference committee that was putting together this tax package to put back out to both houses at the time. And it was brought in by the Democratic leadership and uh, was massaged a little bit in the, in the conference committee. I was one of the two Republicans on the conference committee and a number of the other members that were on that conference committee are still active uh, in politics uh, in one way or another. Uh, but in any event, uh, we put out the kicker as part of that tax package. That tax package was then sent to the voters and was overwhelmingly approved at that time uh, by the voters of Oregon. Now, I don't want to anticipate your questions, but <laughs> go ahead. But but uh, often I'm asked, why didn't you put it in a rainy day fund? Mm-hmm. Well, there were advocates for a rainy day fund at the time. However, in 1979, there were more advocates against a rainy day fund because the idea was not to tie up money. The idea was to, if there's money. The government shouldn't be tying it up. The idea was to get it back out into the economy, uh, into the people's hands. And so we chose to go with the refund, the 2% kicker, uh, as opposed to tying it up in a rainy day fund. Since then, of course, we've created a rainy day fund. And today, if we were voting on this $700 million surplus, we probably would do it differently. But in 1979, that was chosen to be the way to go. And since then, it's been validated a couple of times at the polls by the voters, and not, not the, uh, the least of which has, the voters have put it into the Constitution. So now it's a constitutional uh, matter. So uh, the kicker, uh, uh, whether people like it or don't like it as tax policy, has been very successful and well-received by the voters of Oregon and validated by their affirmative vote at the polls. Yeah. And, sorry, I, I was going to say, I'd be curious for your thoughts. I know right now we obviously have a very deep blue legislature, but I think more than that, I think we've also become very partisan in that there's a lot of both sides like to get their talking points out there. And it seems like actual real policy is a lot more difficult to come by. Do you think it was a lot easier to work either across the aisle or, you know, within the Republican caucus when you're a representative to actually craft policy and be able to have hearings on and testimony on and clearly get this passed that's now been a major part of our state's economy for the last 40 years? Well, in, in 1979, uh, believe me, there was partisanship then. We used to fight like hell during the elections. Mm-hmm. When the elections were over, we would gather in Salem, and uh, not that there was no partisan uh, uh, 
uh, bickering uh, that went on, but the ultimate objective was to get the job done. Whatever needed to be done for the people of the state of Oregon, we would work together to get it done. In 1979, we were in the minority. The Democrats controlled both houses of the legislature. We had a Republican governor, uh, Victor Atia, at the time. I was the minority leader in the House and got along very well with the Democrat Speaker of the House and, as a matter of fact, got along pretty well with the Democrat Senate President, Jason Bull. So there was a lot of cooperation. We we really did work together, and uh, although this, this, this package of, uh, of tax reform that was passed I would not want to label it as Republican because there were definitely some things in there that if the Republicans had controlled would not have been in the package. But there were some things in there that the Republicans probably would have endorsed, Kicker being possibly one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, In any event, we worked together. We got this done. And like I said, it was was received very well by the members of the legislature and then was validated by the uh, voters of Oregon uh, later on, uh, overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. So it was. It was. It ended up being a pretty good tax package at the time. Most of which has been either amended or re- or uh, uh, repealed since. But at the time, it was good, and I definitely remember uh, Senate President Bo saying on the record uh, that uh, this is, you know, this is not meant to to be locked in to state law forever. Uh, you know, we may come back next session and make changes to it. Mm-hmm. So, because that's the way it was passed at the time. Because, you know, we, we knew that there weren't going to be $700 million surpluses every session. At infinitum, sure. Yeah, that's not what's going to happen. Matter yeah. of fact, the economy went bad and the very next session, you know, they didn't have that luxury. And in the early 80s, we had some tough times as far as budgeting is concerned. Sure. And just a, uh, a point that we were making downstairs is, is since 1979, when this, is, this was enacted, this has returned over a billion dollars of tax money back to Oregonians, back into the economy. So that, that's fantastic. So the other thing that's in the news these days is the, there's a discussion about pulling back some of that money to go, to go affect PERS. And so that's $108 million we were talking well, about. Well, I, I, uh, I, my recollection is that that's not... That hundred eight million dollars is uh, is being taken by the by the legislature, but mm-hmm. it, I didn't I didn't understand that it was going to. Oh, that purse. was that was the article that I read. Um, uh, I thought it was uh, making up for some other budget adjustments that they were doing, but uh, it it would be a drop in the bucket. Yeah, on, for, on the purse problem, it would not have an effect on the purse right. situation. We did a purse episode uh, two episodes ago, and yeah, twenty five billion dollar unfunded liability, and they're taking a hundred million. Like you don't have to be good at math to know that. That's <laughs> yeah. This that that would it would that would be it wouldn't even be symbolic in my in my world. Well, it is symbolic. I think it's symbolic that that the Democrats are just trying to take more money and build their. Okay, their... I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> I'd like to go back though and expand on one comment you made. Sure. The the amount of money that has been returned to taxpayers through the two percent kicker uh, over time. I don't know the exact number, but it's like over a billion dollars. Besides just the refund of that money to taxpayers, there's something else that people should understand. Had that money not been refunded to taxpayers, it would have gone into the state general fund budget. And over those 40 years, it would have been rolled up each biennium so that today, when you talk about shortfalls in state the state general fund budget, your shortfall would be 
tremendously larger today with that money injected into the general fund budget and rolled up over time than, than, than it is now having had that money refunded to taxpayers. Absolutely. So uh, besides the direct impact or the direct benefit to taxpayers getting money back into their pocket, it's had a big impact on the state budget over time. Sure. Is there anything that you would do, given that the state is what, you know, I've only been here for three and a half years, but it, Oregon strikes me as a, a, you know, fantastically beautiful state. You know, we're recording this just in the shadow of Mount Hood, and obviously we got the coast and everything, but it strikes me as a very business unfriendly state. And it seems that every chance they get, there are legislators trying to tax more and take more money away. If you were, if you still held your seat, or if you were running for something again right now in 2020, what are some of the things that you'd like to do to see this state try to regain some of its fiscal sanity? Elect more Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think there was there's there's always been an attack by some on the business community. And obviously, the business community is going to scream bloody murder when that happens, and they're going to uh, they're going to use it to try to uh, incite people to come to their their defense. Uh, sometimes the business community has been guilty of overstating their problem. Uh, sometimes the business community has been less than united in their position uh, against this. I I think it is it is true that. Some of the items that are being passed or are being, excuse me, not being passed, but that are being considered for passing in the current session of the legislature, as well as some of those that have been passed in the past, could definitely be considered, considered business unfriendly. Uh, if you measure, uh, Oregon against other states in the nation, you probably will find, uh, well, by some people's estimation, we are average. Uh, other people would say we are definitely negative when it comes to business. I think it, it depends on which, which the business is, which kind of business it is. And you have to look specifically at the legislation. I won't subscribe to a general thought that, that, uh, Oregon is always unfriendly to business. Currently, yes, you can certainly make that case and I wouldn't argue with that. But there are some things that we've done in the past. That even the, 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 when the Democrats have been in control, that uh, have not been unfriendly to business. They've even been friendly to business. And so I, I think we need to be a little bit careful when we generalize. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty easy to label business, label Oregon as unfriendly to business right now. And that may be the case right now in uh, 2019. Uh, it may even have been the case for the last couple of uh, legislative cycles. But it hasn't always been that, and I don't believe that it's always going to be that. Okay. Because uh, everybody will come to realize that eventually that, you know, what's good for the state and what's not good for the state. And I just think, I don't think it can last. Some of, these, some of the things that are going on right now are wacky, but uh, I, I'm not sure they're going to pass. And if they do, I'm not sure they'll last. Well, I got my fingers crossed that you're right. <laughs> well, I, I hope I'm right, too. I, you know, I try to be an optimist about this. And I and I hope to gosh that we can return to the days when the D's and the R's used to work uh, closer together. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, right now is not that's not happening. Mm -hmm. But I I'm optimistic and I remain optimistic that it'll return. Sounds good. All right. Well, we promise not to take up too much of your time, and we're coming up on 15 minutes. So 
thank you so much for being on the podcast and uh we'll see you uh the rest of the day it's my pleasure <laughs> thank right. you yep thanks for our second interview of the episode, we welcome Dr. Eric Fruits, Oregon's best economist. <laughs> Which is, for the listeners, this is a bit of an inside joke, but he touches on how he got to be named Oregon's best economist at the start of the episode, so that's a good one. Yeah, Dr. Fruits is a professor at Portland State University and a contributor to a lot of different economic publications around the Northwest. He's uh yeah he's a he's a big wig at Cascade Policy Institute which is great because we on the right get kind of tagged as the dummy party and the left is all the ones with the intellectuals and it's like well no we found one of them we you know we got the chance to read some of uh some of Dr. Fruits's white papers and the research that Cascade does and uh, and he's also a former Multnomah County GOP chair so Eric is Eric is the guy you want to know and he lives up to his title as Oregon's best economist and now he's Oregon's best podcast guest. That's right. And so in this episode, we have a discussion with Dr. Fruits about PERS. And so regular time listeners will know that we already had a big, long episode about PERS, but this is a different perspective and from a PhD economist. So I think that it's worth listening to. So without further ado, here's Dr. Fruits. Our next guest this episode is going to be Dr. Eric Fruits, Oregon's best economist. Well, that's right. That's yes. right. Yes. Uh, Self-described. Self Self-described. Yes. Uh, I heard Oregon's it on the radio economist, now. It's right? <laughs> it's on, it, we've heard it on the radio. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was on uh, Abrams and Pacero a few weeks ago. Yeah, I was introduced as Oregon's best economist. First time actually in public. It started as, as a bit of a joke mm -hmm. on my part. I wanted to test how search engine optimization worked, and I thought I wanted to know how long it would take if I tried to describe myself. As Oregon's best economist, how long would the search engines take to call me that? That measure failed, but um, <laughs> what I decided to do was I ha had an opportunity to give a speech, and uh, the person who was introducing me uh, asked me to write my own bio so that they can introduce me, and I decided, as a joke, maybe just to see if they were paying attention, I wrote down, you know, Eric Fruits describes himself as Oregon's best economist, <laughs> and then and went on with the other parts of the bio. And it turns out I was shocked when they introduced me and they actually read it. They didn't do any <laughs> editing of what I wrote. And so I realized that if you write your own bio, and I think this is a lesson for anyone who's giving a speech or a talk, if they ask you for a bio, write your own bio and feel free to embellish it as much as you want. <laughs> so what happened then was I I wrote down my, my bio of you know Oregon's best economist. I was introduced as Oregon's best economist. Other people have picked it up, and now people out of the blue call me Oregon's best economist, <laughs> and it's great because it's a you know it, it, the whole idea is to take this meme, propagate the meme, and it's really hard to refute because now I can say people have called me Oregon's best economist, even though I was the one who started it. Right. So have have you just ever Googled yourself Oregon's best economist? Not yet. I'm too to, I'm too afraid. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a Leo, and so I love to be loved, and I don't like to see anything critical. Anything when, negative. Yeah. Uh, well, you picked the wrong. Uh, this is a political conference that we're here at Dorchester. So well, I also have the same birthday as Bill Clinton. We have a, uh, the only thing we have in common is our birthday, and that we both played saxophone. Mm. I will never be president, and. Well, we won't go into any of the other stuff. <laughs> got it. Got it. So we had an episode on PERS two episodes ago and talked about sort of the contractual obligations that the state is in and how there have been attempts to reform PERS over the years. And every single time we pass a measure, pass a law, it gets struck down by the courts because it's contractually binding now. And so you, you were mentioning earlier that that's not the only case that, that the Oregon legislature 
does that sort of thing. Well, that's right. Well, you guys are fairly young, and what you may not know is I am the only economist, actually one of the only one of the few people in the world who has actually testified before the Oregon Supreme Court which is very rare, you usually don't testify before a Supreme Court, and probably the only economist to do so. And I did so involving PERS reforms back in the early 2000s, Ted Kulongoski's PERS reforms. Um, What happened was the way the the PERS reforms are written, they said if you want to contest the PERS changes, it goes immediately to the Oregon Supreme Court. You know, you don't Mm. have this whole appeals process because they want to resolve it quickly. So it's one of those weird cases where a, a case went immediately to the Supreme Court. And so that's why I got to testify before the Oregon Supreme Court on PERS. So I've been uh, studying PERS and working on PERS for close to uh, now almost almost 20 years. And so, and the PERS problem is actually older than 20 years. I mean, the, mm-hmm. what's funny about PERS is people say, oh, well, we're just kicking the can down the road. PERS is actually designed to kick the can down the road. Hmm. The whole idea of PERS is to push all the problems way into the future. And the problem we have now is that the future is today. Yeah. And when back then in the early 2000s, the, the PERS unfunded actuarial liability was about $500 million. Wow. And we thought that was a huge problem. We thought that was a crisis. That was a crisis, right? We thought yeah. that was an insurmountable crisis where we needed to make radical reforms. You know, right now we are at a $24 billion unfunded liability. My guess is with the um, returns on the investments, we are going to be at about $29 billion. We don't have the final numbers, but... Well, that's still assuming the same 7.5, I think, discount rate. If seven it, and a quarter, but what I'm talking about is the uh, the actual investment returns because okay. Okay. Uh, a lot of the money that PERS makes comes from investments. And a lot of the investments aren't just stock market investments, they're private equity. And we don't know uh, how the private equity investments do... We won't know how they actually play out until maybe next year or the year after, or could be even five or ten years later because they take a long time to unwind. But uh, based on the stuff I've seen, my guess is it will be about $29 billion in unfunded actuarial liability, which is a big amount. Yeah. And so the, the legislators in Salem, their solution is to take $100, billion, $100 million, excuse me, million with an M, out of the Oregon State kicker and apply it toward PERS. And so that that is their solution to the twenty five billion dollar problem that we have. Well, that's right. It, you know, you've got a big problem. You've got a twenty, I'll say twenty nine billion dollar problem. But everything that they come up with is such small ball, mm-hmm. right? You add up all their quote unquote solutions, and you're looking at no more than five to ten percent of the total unfunded liability, yeah. and it, it'll probably be less. You know, so that's a huge problem. You know, you, it, when you have a big problem, you need a big solution. You need a radical solution. You can't just tinker at the edges. And the big fundamental problem is Tier 1 and Tier 2. And the problem with Tier 1 and Tier 2 is that the Oregon Supreme Court has determined that those are contractual obligations that the state has made. And we can argue about whether they really are or aren't, but I think the only way to really deal with that PERS problem in Tier 1 and Tier 2, and Tier 1's a much bigger problem than Tier 2, is to, I think we need a constitutional amendment that says, the Constitution says you cannot interfere with contract. And as someone who is um, pro-free market, 
and, and anti-government interference. I believe in that. I think that's a very valuable amendment. But I think maybe what we need on something like that is people should know that any time the government does something, it should necessarily be capricious because you cannot, each legislature cannot make another, a future legislature do something. You can't commit that legislature to doing something. And so, and, and you hear that all the time. You hear that with a lot of laws. You can't make another legislature do something that, that you don't want to do. But what they do in this case is they contract them. They do it through contracts. And another thing we could talk about later on, it would be with bonds. And so I think what we need to do is say, look, pensions are something separate and they're such a big problem that we need to exempt PERS from that contractual obligation, that we can, as a legislature, interfere with the PERS, quote unquote, contract, that that is the one thing that is exempt from that, that limitation. So isn't there a, a U.S. Constitution contracts clause that that might interfere with or might be interfered with by that? Well, there is. Um, but there's a, a case in California where they are starting to, to break this, where they have said that their pension problem doesn't really satisfy that test. And I think if we started poking on that, I, I don't think it's, it's going to be a slam dunk. It's one of those things where you need to start needling it and working it through and eventually we will break through to the problem. Every single problem we have in the state is a PERS problem. And we don't like mm -hmm. to talk about, no one wants to talk about, and, and it's, uh, it's a disgrace that local governments who have no control over, say, PERS legislation and how the PERS system runs, they don't say anything. And they're the ones who are impacted. The problem is they're Democrats and the legislature is Democratic. And so they don't want to hurt their own. And so if you look at school districts, you look at cities, you look at counties, you look at fire districts, you know, there's some fire districts where it's close to 100% of their payroll is on PERS. So in other words, you pay someone $50,000 to be a fire fireman or firewoman, you have to pay another $50,000 into PERS because wow. of the people who are currently retired. It's a small fire district, but sure. you still, you get the idea that it's a massive, massive problem. And so when you have a, a massive problem like that, you have to have a, a, a massive solution. You know, it's $29 billion. That's There's only 4 million people in the state. Yeah. You know, it, it's if you try to amortize that over time, it's a massive amount of money. Yeah. Our guest from a couple episodes ago was a uh, employee of ODOT, and he was saying 20 to 30% of his salary is, is going to PERS. It's crazy. Sorry. Well, what's funny about it, it's not his salary. He right, gets, yeah. he he gets what gets he gets his money. Right, right, so right. So you put that on top. Right. right. On top so of if you salary. think about that, you know, why? So if you have a a teacher who, say, makes $80,000 a year, pretty soon about 30% of their salary is going to be PERS. So they don't lose that. They don't lose right. their 80. Right. So you take 30% of 80, that's another 24,000. So that means that person, and this is excluding other things like healthcare and other stuff. Now you're up to $124,000 per teacher. So instead of paying, you know, 80 or $90,000 to that teacher, you're now paying 124, which means you have to. You mm -hmm. there's no way around it. Mathematically, you have to have fewer teachers. And sure. so that's why we have huge class sizes. That's why we have fewer adults in the building. And because we have bigger class sizes and fewer adults in the building, that's why we have low test scores. If you go out there, this is what drives me nuts. Every time the, the graduation rates come out and they show that we are near the bottom, you know, second or third lowest, the media 
just drops the ball on it. Mm-hmm. Because the first question should be, why? Mm-hmm. And none of them, not a single media outlet asks why. Even OPB doesn't ask why. And when they do try to get to why, they're like, we don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. It's a, Oh, it's a mystery. Because you can't, is all the traditional excuses don't work in Oregon. Uh, they say, well, maybe it's uh, uh, racial disparities. Well, the problem is, you know, we're the whitest state in the country. Yeah. And so you can't say, well, it's, you know, it, it's some sort of uh, uh, other racial group that's driving dragging us down. It's not. You could say, well, it's income disparities. Well, we have relatively, we have lower, below average national income. We're about 7 to 8% below the national average on per capita personal income. But our income disparity, we... We are poor, but we are equal in Oregon. Uh, so it's a night. It's kind of like Venezuela, it's you a know. Utopia, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a utopia uh, of low but relatively equal incomes, although it's getting worse. And so you know all the traditional excuses for why we have why states like Mississippi would have low graduation rates right. don't hold for Oregon. The only answer is PERS because we are spending so much money on teachers who aren't teaching, right? Those teachers who aren't teaching are the retired teachers. We're paying for people who have provided their services 10, 20, 15, 20 years ago, and they're gone. They they are not adding value to our students, but we're still paying for them today. And so that's taking money out of our classrooms. And so, you know, I'm focusing on education. Foster care problem. Why do we have a body count in our foster care? I mean, hmm. what other state has a body count in their foster care system? Right. And Oregon actually has a body count. You could stack them up and you could probably measure it in feet hmm. uh, of how many children have died in the foster care system. Is all because of PERS. Every single problem that we have in the state can pretty much be laid down to all that money going to PERS for people who provided service years ago that are not providing service today. And that's killing us today. If you if you've been retired for twenty or thirty years and you're still collecting, obviously what a hundred or hundred ten percent of what your salary was when you were working, that's that's a massive debt that the state has to pay off. But is there any chance that those people? For lack of a better term, is there any chance enough of them start to die off where the the total payouts that go out each month and each year eventually starts to decrease? Or is there is the only way out of this, like you say, to take drastic action? Well, they I mean, they do die. They off die off. I mean, that's just natural. There's natural, nothing. Yeah. Uh, that's just how it happens. And I am, you know, personally sympathetic to to the individuals in their own situation because, I mean, Put yourself in the public employee's position. A lot of times we think of them as, you know, the evil people who are, you know, robbing the state. But I think it's useful to look at it from their perspective. They made plans based on a promise that was made. And, you know, if someone did that to you, you think about something like the mortgage interest deduction, right? Mm -hmm. We're thinking about taking that away. We're furious about that, right? That, In some ways, that was a promise that was made to us. I made a 30-year commitment to buy my house. And part of that commitment was premised on the what I thought was a promise that I could deduct my interest. Well, I would say um, as, yeah. as a as a veteran, I have a lot of friends who are on that, you know, 20 years, get 50 percent of your salary, military retirement. And that's the same thing. There was there's been they try every couple of years to take away like the cost of living adjustment or take like bring that down a little bit. And same thing. You take your entire life. Just just to echo what you're saying, you take your entire life and dedicate it to a certain service or to a certain plan, 
and based on what you think that's going to be. And if you change that, that later on, change that contract later on, it can really mess with people's lives. Well, it can, because you make, the thing is, it's not just messing with your life. You make commitments mm-hmm. based on that expectation. Right. You do things like you enter into debt arrangements, like you get a mortgage. Uh, and, and at the risk of sounding like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, <laughs> um, you know, th- there is this other issue, right? Because someone like uh, AOC might say, well, who needs to make a million dollars a year? A million is enough, right? She, right. she hasn't said that, but that's something you can imagine she would say. Well, you can flip that around on the PERS, right? You can say, why does a public employee need to make more than a quarter million dollars a year in retirement. In mm-hmm. retirement, why does a public employee need to make twenty two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in retirement, or one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year? You know, you got people like Mike Bellotti. Mm-hmm. He's the most famous, but not the worst. Yeah, he's the, the most guy from OHSU at seventy five thousand dollars a month or something. OHSU, oh yeah, he's the most yeah. famous. That's Robertson. Uh, Bellotti was the was the first poster child. He was the Oregon Ducks coach. He retired Go with, with uh, <laughs> my four, wife listens to these. I got to say it. <laughs> $480,000 a year yeah. in, in, in retirement benefits. I mean, this is $480,000 a year in retirement. I don't make $480,000 a year working. Yeah. This guy gets it in retirement. It's nuts. Robertson gets even more than that. And he mm-hmm. was OHSU. And he, he drove the institution into the ground. He built a silly ass, uh, excuse my language, uh, <laughs> aerial tramp, you know, a totally nuts kind of thing, but total feather bedding. You know, why? Why? What, you know, what value did they add? And more importantly, what value are they adding now? What value is Mike Bellotti adding $480,000 of value to Oregon today with his? To our podcast, he might be, because we bring him up all the time. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's nuts. And so that's, right. you know, that's a real, the most important thing would be just to cap the amount mm-hmm. that you can pay in purse. Mm-hmm. Because, and come on, if the Democrats are dominating Oregon and you say, look, CEOs shouldn't get be paid more than X per, you know, X dollars per year. Why should a retiree? I mean, so what sort you, of commitment is yeah. Mike Bellotti or Robertson making at OHSU where they need, quote unquote, need four hundred eighty thousand yeah. so, or seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in PERS benefits to pay for their their poor lifestyle where they can't Palm they, Springs retire? Right. No, well, you know, yeah. they're just living on ramen, they're right? Just doing, it. yeah. You, you and you know what? You know what Bellotti did as soon as he retired, right? No, he got a job with ESPN for a million dollars a year. (laughs) Yeah, that's the kind of double dipping. Barely scraping by. Yeah, agreed. But you get back into that contracts issue, and you you mentioned sort of like a Supreme Court in order to adjust the Oregon Constitution to allow the adjustment of prior contracts. This would need to go to the Oregon Supreme Court, right? And when in the original, when I testified in the Oregon Supreme Court, one of the arguments they were trying to make was. And it was like the third line of defense, and they never even got to the third line of defense. But one of the arguments they were trying to make was, and remember, our clients were, were the state and mm-hmm. local governments, right? This is what's really wild because it was the public employees who were suing the governments of the state. So in, in mm-hmm. some ways, I was working for the state of Oregon and other mm-hmm. local governments trying to to work on this. But there's this idea in law, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to pretend to be one, but I've done a lot of work involving legal stuff, is this idea of impossibility, right? 
So if you write, I don't make a whole lot of money, but if I write a contract to Nick and say, I'm going to pay you a million dollars a year for the next 50 years, and we sign the contract, and I go, oh, well, that contract can't be violated. Well, the problem is, is what Nick didn't know is I have no way of paying a million dollars a year to him. Mm-hmm. It's impossible for me to satisfy that contract. And under the concept of impossibility, then that contract may be void. And I think maybe what we need to do is look back and say, was that contract impossible? impossible? Hmm. And and more importantly, did they know it was impossible at the time they wrote it? This is another thing that drives me nuts. You know, these politicians, like, for example, Elizabeth Warren is, is the big one, who and Hillary Clinton did this too, complains about, you know, businesses always focus so hard on the short term. This short-termism needs to end. We need to take a long-term approach about the great American economy. And you think to yourself, Every politician <laughs> is a short-termer, right? Yeah. They, you know, especially if you're in the house, you're always looking two years yeah, two ahead. Two years, yeah. Two years that's ahead. Window, it's like that's yeah. all I care about is what am I going to do in the next two years? PERS is a two years problem, right? Kate Brown says I don't want to deal with PERS because in two years I'll be out of office and I don't have to worry about it. If yeah. I don't have to deal with it now, I will have this halo from the SEIU and I might get a nice job in a Democratic Go you know, administration. Or something yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. she's going to go to DC, don't you think? You think so? Oh, yeah. I, she'll, get, I have no idea. she'll get snapped up. You know, the claw machine of the Democratic Party is going <laughs> to reach in, grab her plush toy, pick her up, and drop her off in some nice cushy spot. And, you know, she'll be like, um, you know, the head of this or that commission for this and that stuff. And she'll pull yeah. in six figures and have a title where people call her madam. And uh, and, and she'll be happy. And, hey, well, it's a good gig if you can get it. Just for her. get elected governor of Oregon and... Give yeah, everything you can be to like the... Goldschmidt and become the uh, Secretary of Transportation. There you hey, go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we are just about out of time. So, Dr. Fruits, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks. And, and there's no us... time limits on podcasts. I hope no, you know. that's true. <laughs> uh, I, all right. Well, our listeners have they they just get real sick of hearing us talk. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> all well, right. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.